1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 22. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we bore witness against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hope in Christ in this life, only we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Let's pray. Father of glory, we give you praise this morning. We praise you that you sent your son, that he bore our sins and that he's alive. God, that he rose from the dead on the third day by the power of God, the very same resurrection power that is in us by your spirit to walk in newness of life. God, may we understand this morning the implications of what you have done, the implications that Christ has been raised to life so that we are raised and we will be raised to life. God, may you use your word this morning to get our attention, work in our hearts, conform us into the image of your dear son, and we will give you the glory for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. The city of Corinth was located in the Roman province of Achaia, in today's southern Greece, but it was a pagan city. Even by the standards of the Greco-Roman world, Corinth was morally corrupt. Like most ancient Greek cities, Corinth had an acropolis, an elevated part of the city that was used for both defense and worship. The most prominent edifice on their acropolis was the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, with a thousand priestesses who were religious prostitutes that came down into the city during the evening to serve as male citizens and foreign visitors. Corinth was also known for Gnosticism, a prominent first century religious philosophy that stemmed from Plato, teaching enlightenment and dualism. They taught that matter, the physical, is inherently evil and the spirit is good. They believe that anything done in the body, even the grossest of sins, has no meaning because real life exists only in the spirit realm. Of course, this led to rampant immorality throughout not just Corinth, but much of Asia Minor. Some even tried to syncretize 
Gnosticism, and Christianity. Some denied Jesus' physical body, teaching that his body only seemed to be real, and his resurrection was only an illusion. The Apostle John, in his first epistle, refutes this Gnosticism. In 1 John 1.1, he writes, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld in touch with our hands concerning the word of life. You see, God came in human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He came in a real physical body and incarnation. So the gospel brought to Corinth by the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey stood in stark contrast to the people's religion of that day. Understand, based upon Paul's arguments later in this chapter, in our text actually, the Corinthian church believed in Christ's resurrection, but apparently some were saying that there was no resurrection for God's people, and Paul refused this. So let's back up for a moment to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 as a foundation for our primary text. Paul writes in verse 3, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The message of the good news had not originated with the Apostle Paul. Paul had received it from God and delivered it to the Corinthians and others. Paul proclaimed the gospel of God, the gospel that is of God and from God. Notice Paul also writes that this good news is of first importance. This doctrine of the gospel is preeminent. It is not an optional position to believe. It is not a second or third tier doctrine. It is of first importance, and I would say it is a hill to die on. There are various doctrines in the Christian faith. Some are certainly more important than others. Some are fundamental, and some are secondary. But the gospel is of first importance. Your view on millennialism is certainly not a hill to die on. There are doctrines that are negotiable. And there are doctrines that are non-negotiable, such as the inerrancy of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the doctrine of God, the sinfulness of man, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And of course, the gospel of God, the good news of Christ, namely the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that we see in these verses. This is a hill to die on. This is of first importance. And we must stand firm no matter what the world says, no matter what it might cost us, no matter if we are persecuted for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the hill that we must die on. It is a doctrine. It is a truth about God and truth about reality that is worthy of us giving our lives. The gospel of Christ stands in stark contrast to all cultures in all human wisdom. It separates Christ from all others. It separates Christ from all so-called saviors who are dead in the grave. It assumes the depravity of man, and it's based on the holiness and justice of God. And it screams to us of God's love and his mercy to those who believe. But in the context of the book of Corinthians, it also refutes the philosophy of Gnosticism. The teaching, or the, excuse me, the scriptures teach that God in Christ came in human flesh, the God-man, 
truly God, truly man, the kinsman redeemer. He lived a sinless life. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, we find the gospel proper that he died for our sins, that he was buried in a grave and he was raised on the third day. It was a physical death, a physical burial, and a bodily physical resurrection. Notice here also that Christ died according to the scriptures. He rose on the third day according to the scriptures. This speaks of Old Testament prophecies, of Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament prophesied of his death, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. The Old Testament prophesied of his resurrection, Psalm 2 and Psalm 16. There are also Old Testament foreshadows of these events. These Old Testament scriptures looked ahead and prophesied of these glorious events. So the death, burial, and resurrection is the culmination of history. The Old Testament prophesied of the coming Messiah who would die, would be buried, and would raise from the dead. The New Testament reveals and explains this good news and its implications. But then in verses 5 through 11, Paul gives us proof that Christ was raised from the dead. And he does so by listing those who had seen him with their eyes, even 500 at one time. But also remember Thomas in John chapter 20, also called Didymus, one of the 12, who said, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. But later, when the resurrected Christ showed him his hands and his side, Thomas said what? He said, my Lord and my God. For Thomas, the resurrected Lord, was proof positive that Christ is indeed the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He is the Savior of the world. For Thomas, the resurrection caused him to worship the risen Savior. But before we get into this morning's passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 and following, remember, Gnosticism had apparently caused some Corinthians to question their hope in the resurrection. So Paul here questions them in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Or since the believer's resurrection is based upon Christ's resurrection, how can you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Look at verse 13. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Paul, in essence, is saying, if your claim is true, that there's no resurrection, that would mean that Christ has not been raised. But if Christ's resurrection guarantees the resurrection of those who have believed, those who are in Christ, it guarantees it. It's what I'm trying to say. Then in verses 14 through 19, Paul gives six implications of a Messiah that remains in the grave. The first one is this. If Christ is not raised from the dead, the apostles preaching is meaningless. Verse 14, he writes, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. 
If Christ is not raised from the dead, then the preaching of all the apostles were in vain. And everyone who has ever proclaimed the name of Christ. The word vain, kenon, means empty, hollow, useless, false, fallacious, void, or meaningless. There is no benefit in preaching a dead Messiah. He would have no life to give. If Christ has not been raised, he has been defeated by death. Therefore, he has no life to give. Anyone who proclaims a gospel without the resurrection proclaims a dead Messiah and a useless message. Without the resurrection, there is no good news to declare, no gospel, no hope, no righteousness. If Christ is not raised, all preaching is absolutely futile. It is vain. It is meaningless. If Christ was not raised, Jesus is no different than any other religious leader. Secondly, if Christ was not raised, your faith is useless. He says again in verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. In other words, if Christ is not raised from the dead, it's not just our preaching, Paul says, that's in vain, but your faith is also in vain. If Christ is not raised from the dead, it means you have trusted in a Messiah that has no power to save you. It means that you have trusted in a Messiah who has not appeased God's wrath. It means you've trusted in a Messiah who cannot rescue from sin, who cannot save anyone from the penalty of sin, which is eternal death. It means your faith is vain. It's empty. It's useless. It's meaningless. You see, faith, your faith is only as good as the object of your faith. If you put your faith in a sinking ship, you're going to go down with the ship. If you put your faith in a Savior who died and remains in the grave, you have no hope of resurrection. You have no life. You have no salvation. If Christ is not raised, you might as well go to the way of the world. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and that's all there is. Live for self. Satisfy your fleshly desires. The world is all that you get. If Christ is not raised, your faith is useless because your resurrection is contingent upon the resurrection of Christ. We must believe not only in the crucifixion, but also in the resurrection of our Lord. Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, in Romans 10, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, it's faith in a crucified, resurrected Lord that we're saved. This is the vast difference between Christianity and every other religion. Muhammad died and he's in the grave. He remains in the grave. Confucius died and he is in the grave. Buddha died and he's still in the grave. Joseph Smith died and he's in the grave. Mary Baker Eddy died and she is in the grave. They have nothing to give. There's no life in them, but Jesus Christ, folks, he died and he was raised from the dead and he is alive forevermore. Our faith is in a risen Savior who holds the keys to heaven and hell. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He is he 
who will raise to life all those who confess him as Lord and believe in their hearts that God has raised him from the dead, they will be saved and they will live forevermore. You see, we serve those who are born again in true Christianity. We serve a risen Savior. Our lives have been changed. We are new creations in Christ. We are dead to sin and alive to God, and we await the redemption of the body, even the glorification of the body into the heavenly realm. Those who have been born of God have already experienced spiritual resurrection. We have been raised from spiritual death to walk in newness of life. The scriptures are clear. Paul wrote to those Roman believers again in chapter 6, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk right now, walk in newness of life. Paul wrote to those in Ephesus in chapter 2, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, we are resurrected in Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. And those who are alive in Christ await a physical resurrection After Lazarus died, Jesus said to Martha in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Because he lives, we will live forever. You see the importance of the resurrection. Thirdly, if Christ is not raised from the dead, the apostles are false witnesses. Verse 15 He writes, moreover, we are found, even found to be false witnesses of God because we bore witness against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. If Christ is not raised from the dead, the apostles and all who proclaim the name of Christ are false witnesses. We have broken the ninth commandment. We are perjurers in the courtroom of God. We are liars both before God and men. This would mean that the disciples and all those witnesses in verses 5 through 11 of this same chapter and other places who claimed to see the resurrected Christ were deceivers. They were perverting reality. But the truth is the disciples were willing to die a martyr's death, and many did. They had seen the resurrected Lord. They had met him in the upper room. Thomas had touched the scars in his hands and his side. These are not the false witnesses. Rather, any person who claims to be a Christian and does not believe in the resurrected Christ, that is the false witness. Fourthly, if Christ is not raised from the dead, your faith is worthless. Verses 16 and 17. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. The word worthless means aimless, fruitless, purposeless. The word is used to describe like shooting at a star or chasing the wind or chasing your shadow or building a house on the sand. It is worthless. 
Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, like building a house upon the sand and you are still in your sins. Paul is saying, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, there is no savior. There is no forgiveness. There is no justification. If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins, dead in sin, dead to God, condemned without hope and without God in this world. But why would we still be in our sins if Christ has not been raised? Because the resurrection is God's vindication that God has accepted the sacrifice. It proves that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we will be raised. Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, because I live, you will live also. Paul declared of Christ in Romans chapter 4, he who was delivered over on account of our transgressions and was raised on account of our justification. Notice it doesn't say for our justification, but on account of or because of our justification. It was the resurrection of Christ that was God's stamp of approval on the saving power of Christ's death. We can know that we have been accepted by God, that our sins have been forgiven by the crucifixion of Christ, proven by the resurrection. The resurrection is not optional in the Christian faith. The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. If Christ has not been raised, we are still in our sins. But because, folks, because Christ has been raised, so have we been raised into a relationship with God without sin, justified. We are in a relationship without death, without condemnation, and we await the glorification of the body, which is sure. Fifthly, if Christ is not raised from the dead, death is final. What a sobering thought in verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, if Christ has not been raised, it would mean that death defeated the Messiah. And if death defeated the Messiah, it will surely defeat us. The word perished here does not speak of annihilation. It speaks of eternal destruction separation from God's mercy and God's grace forever in a place called hell. Here Paul speaks of those who have died as if they have just fallen asleep. Paul uses an everyday event to describe the believer's state in death, simply speaking, or excuse me, simply sleeping, awaiting to be awoken awaiting the upward call of God, the resurrection and the glorification of the body. But again, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then all who have trusted Christ and died, all who are in the grave have perished. They're already in the flames of hell. They're already fully exposed to the wrath of the Lamb. They are either weeping in regret or gnashing their teeth in anger against God. In 1 Thessalonians 4, though, Paul told the church of Thessalonica, or the Thessal- 
the Thessalonians, excuse me, do not grieve as those who have no hope. He writes in verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, not by Paul's words, but by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. It's eternal life, you see. But finally, notice, if Christ is not raised from the dead, we're the most worthy of pity. In verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. Pity speaks of being worthy of pity, full of misery, wretched, miserable. If this life is all there is, we are the most to be pitied, the most miserable of all people, the most wretched of all mankind. We would be at the head of the list of those to be pitied. If we have put our faith in one that remains in the grave, then above all others, we are to be pitied. For we, just like the religions of the world, have put our faith in a Savior that remains in the grave, that cannot forgive sin, that cannot give life, that cannot raise the dead. Do you understand why the resurrection of Christ is so important to the Christian faith? If Christ is not raised from the dead, our preaching is meaningless. Our faith is useless. The apostles were false witnesses. Our faith is worthless. Death is final, and we're the most of all men to be pitied. So all is folly, really. But notice verse 20, but now. There's that divine conjunction, as I like to call it. Since I've been criticized for using it a different way, but you're going to see something in a moment. Verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones that said, praise God for those buts in the Bible. But now, you see, it makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? But now Christ has been raised. God says, but now the tomb is empty and he is the first fruits of those believing who have died. Verse 21, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. By one man, Adam came death, he says. Through Adam's sin, you see, sin was imputed to all his descendants and therefore death. But by another man, the second Adam, Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, by him came life, even the resurrection of the dead. 
You see, because Christ has been raised to life, preaching is powerful. Faith is alive. The apostles are truth tellers. The cross is triumphant. Death is defeated and life has meaning. We are alive together with him. We have a home in heaven and we will worship the saving Messiah for all eternity. Because Christ has been resurrected to life. He has taken the sting out of death. He is our victory because Christ lives. We will live forever. Paul in chapter 8, I believe it is, of the book of Romans writes, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord the one that's exalted, the one that is resurrected and who has ascended to that place of authority where he rules and reigns and he will do so forever. He is Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Again, Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. But then verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever. Do you believe this? Ladies and gentlemen, do you believe this? This is the hope of every Christian. This is the guarantee of victory that Jesus Christ is alive. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He ever lives to make intercession for the saints. He lives and works to accomplish all things for our good and his glory. He is sovereign over all. He is our substitute. He is the propitiation or the satisfying sacrifice for our sins. He is our justification and he is our hope. God has raised him from the dead and given him a name that is above every name that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have you confessed him as Lord? Have you believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead? I command you by the authority of the word of God, there is salvation in no other name. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for many, for all who would believe. Because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there is full pardon to everyone who repents and believes in his name, who turns from their sins and turns to Christ in faith. Because he lives, he is not only the Savior of the world, he is Lord of heaven and earth. Have you turned away from the world? Have you turned away from your sins, turned away from any self-righteousness and trusted him as Lord and Savior? Have you denied yourself, taken up your cross and followed him? The Lord commanded Jeremiah, and to this people you shall say, thus saith the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. If you have never turned from your sins to Christ, choose life. Choose life. Turn to Christ. Look to him and live. The Lord says, look unto me all the ends of the earth 
and be ye saved. Folks, if you look to Christ as the crucified, risen Savior, he will embrace you with his arms of grace. He will wash you in his blood. He will adopt you as his child. He will prepare a place for you in heaven, and you will live with him for all eternity. You will live in glory, in paradise with God, the source of all that is good forever and ever and ever. Because he is our hope, we worship and we celebrate this morning. May we here at Cornerstone Church continue to worship him as we enter into the time of the Lord's table. Through the table, the Lord's table, we proclaim the good news of the saving Messiah. The resurrection tells us that God has accepted the sacrifice. Jesus died on the day of atonement. And before giving up his spirit, what did he say? To tell us die. It is finished. The price had been paid, atonement made, salvation purchased. And three days later, he proved that salvation had been accomplished when he rose from the dead by the power of God. So our worship service here at Cornerstone Church culminates each Sunday in the Lord's table. If you're truly born again this morning, you are welcome to worship and partake with us. If not, we challenge you to let the bread and the wine pass you by. And while we are celebrating, would you cry out to him for mercy? Would you call upon the crucified, resurrected Lord to save you? Would you turn from your sins and look to Christ? This, in a sense, is an invitation for you. The unleavened bread represents the sinless body of Christ. He was without spot or blemish or any such thing. Yet he was broken by the wrath of God, bearing our sins. He was scourged and spit upon. He wore a crown of thorns. He was beaten and whipped. His hands and his feet bore nails of iron. He was pierced through for our transgressions, and he endured the wrath of God on the cross, not just physically, but spiritually, being separated from his Father. But through his death, he brings us into his presence as his body was broken, or I should say, as the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom at the moment that he died his body was broken bringing us into a relationship into the very presence of God all to the praise of his glorious grace the wine represents the cleansing blood of Christ and just as wine in scripture represents judgment even the wrath of God wine also represents blessing and abundance so the wine in communion I believe, pictures the Lord Jesus Christ who took our wrath that we might have his abundant blessing, even life eternal. For by the shedding of blood, there is forgiveness of sins. By the shed blood of Christ, there is eternal forgiveness and eternal atonement for sin. 
So we have been brought into a covenant relationship with God. His blood is the blood of the new covenant, the eternal covenant. We have been brought into the blessings of Abraham. We are children of Abraham through faith and therefore children of God. The apostle John declared in first John chapter three, see how great a love the father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God and such we are.